0: Welcome everybody to this, the second Kenneth Carmiol Endowed Annual Lecture on the Book Trades at Rare Book School. I'm really excited that you're here and excited to be introducing um, both our benefactor first and then our speaker. Ken Carmiol, the generous benefactor who endowed this lecture, uh, is sitting in the front row uh, he'll be giving autographs uh, after, after the talk. Uh, after graduating with a degree in history from the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he began selling books in his junior year, a glimpse of things to come, Ken Carmiol worked as a Peace Corps volunteer. Returning to Southern California, he then earned his master's degree in library science from UCLA. And from 1976 until just last year, Ken owned and operated the eponymous Kenneth Carmiol Bookseller, an antiquarian bookselling firm based in Santa Monica and specializing in early printed books and manuscripts. Sure, Ken has been a prominent bookseller, and a very gifted one too, methinks. But deep into his core, Ken is a philanthropist. Philos a lover of humanity. A person who cares deeply about the stewardship of the historical record in its many forms. The Kenneth Carmiol Endowed Annual Lecture on the Book Trades at Rare Book School is but the latest of a series of strategic benefactions that Ken has made. At UCSB, his alma mater, he first created an endowment for the purchase of rare books and then a second endowment for an annual research fellowship. Then he also established library endowments at UCLA including one for a lecture series on the history of the book trade, which is how we met uh, quite a while ago now, uh, and another for an annual lecture or conference on archival studies, and a third for a research fellowship. Through the Book Club of California, he has also endowed a lecture on the history of the book trade in California and the West, and the inaugural lecture for that talk, John Crichton, is in our midst today. In addition to his charitable investments in the world of books, Ken has rendered energetic service to a variety of organizations, among them the Board of Visitors for the UCLA Graduate School of Education and Information Studies, the Director's Advisory Council of the William Clark Andrews Library, Andrews Clark Library, the National Board of the Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America, the Book Club of California, and far and away, the most important of all, obviously, the Board of Directors of Rare Book School at the University of Virginia. We who are gathered for this second Cormioa Lecture are the happy beneficiaries of Ken's largesse. Please join me in thanking (laughs) Kent. Doctora Eugenia Roldan-Vera is a citizen of the world. Born in Mexico City, she received her master's degree from Warwick University and her doctorate from Cambridge after winning a major research grant from the Rockefeller Foundation, that's in New York, for scholarly research in Buenos Aires, Argentina, she did her postdoc at Humboldt University in Berlin. You get the idea. She is currently professor of the history of education and head of the Department of Educational Research at the Center for Research and Advanced Studies in Mexico City. Her work principally deals with the history of print culture and its relation to the history of education in Mexico and Latin America in the 19th and 20th centuries. Professor Roldán Vera's scholarly writings coalesce around the history of textbooks, the transnational dissemination of educational models, the history of ideas and concepts as mediated through print, and ritual and performative aspects of schooling. Her first book, The British Book Trade and Spanish American Independence, Education and Knowledge in Transcontinental Perspective, 2003, attracted enviably strong reviews. The papers of the Bibliographical Society of America, and I'm sorry to do this to you, called her work original and thought-provoking, opining that Roldan Vera's monograph is a major contribution to bibliographical scholarship and intellectual history. The library in London explained This detailed and well-prepared study draws on a wealth of documentary evidence to trace the important role played by British publishers in the dissemination of knowledge in the emergent Spanish-American republics. The author is to be congratulated on a well-documented study of an important but neglected area of Latin American bibliography. The Hispanic American Historical Review was even more emphatic in its praise. For those who are working in the field of Latin American print culture, Roldan Vera's study is essential reading. No wonder then that this important book is finally, at long last, being issued this year in Spanish. Naturally, throughout her career, various honors and several monographs and edited collections have followed. Perhaps most notably, Professor Roldan Vera's much celebrated Nuestros Pasos por la Escuela, Lo lo que Queda y Lo que Cambia, our steps through school, what remains and what changes, 2010, and transnational histories of education, 2019. This evening, Professor Roldan-Vera will speak on the book trade in the Anglo-Iberian Atlantic in the Independence Era, a Transnational Public Sphere. Please join me in welcoming our Kenneth Carmuel Lecture, Professor Eugenia Roldan-Vera.
1: for your presentation, Michael. Thank you very much, Ken, for bringing me here. It's, um, I'm so happy to be here, not only because this is my first post-Covid trip <laughs> after I mean, in more than two years, but also because, well, to be at the Rare Book School is, is really an honor. This is something I would have loved to do when I was a graduate student. Um, and also, this has given me the opportunity to go into past objects, subjects of research under new light, you know, under new historiography. So this is how it all begins. Um, do books cause revolutions? Do they build nations? Is the dissemination of ideas of political or social radical change a factor of change itself? For a long time, the primacy of the view that ideas are the driving force of history led historians to assume that indeed, books can lead to social transformations. Moreover, typical discussions unleashed by Jurgen Habermas, conceptualization of the public sphere that emerged in the European enlightenment and the classic Benedict Anderson's uh, notion of imagined communities as the basis of nationalism in the 19th century brought to the center the role that print culture had in the development of new forms of communication and forms of experiencing collective belonging. However, studies focusing on the circulation of print, such as Darnton's classic, The Political Bestsellers in Revolutionary France, have been more cautious as to the power books have to originate revolutions, opening up new venues to understand the complex relationship between print culture, reading, and social unrest. In this lecture, I'll go back to these classic themes, examining the relationship between print, independent struggles, and nation building in Latin America in the first third of the 19th century, but with a new element, <coughs> the transnational character of the book trade in this period. Whereas most studies have examined the formation of public spheres and at the national level, and the link between print capitalism and nationalism, the reality is that the circulation of print always transcends borders, and the implications of this have not been properly explored. In the period I'm looking at, the fact that the production and circulation of print spanned over the Anglo-Iberian Atlantic gave way to particular forms of reading and communication in dramatic moments of social and political transformation. So, in the first part of my lecture, I will briefly trace the roots of the book trade in the Anglo-Iberian Atlantic in this period. In the second part, I will take a few examples from the history of reading to discuss the notion of public and transnational public spheres in the 1820s in relation to the building of new nations. Apart from book history, I'm drawing on recent research on the entangled histories of the British and Iberian Atlantic worlds, which have paid attention at the intertwine of politics, religion, slavery, trade, and smuggling in the mutual constitution of both empires. This work suggests that the entire Atlantic Basin was transformed by the conquest of new peoples and the production and commercialization of new products, from chocolate to cochineal, from cod to mahogany, from sugar to Brazil wood, the tobacco trade is a good example of that entanglement. And you probably know that better than me. The Amerindian elites in Virginia ran the trade of the aromatic, curled tobacco leaves for chewing cigars for perfumes. Sorry, no, I. Yeah, it was the other one. Okay. Um, they, they, they ran this, this cigar, the trade of cigars and leaves and tobacco powder mixed with spices. But then the Caribbean, Euro African sailors took control, informally, informal control of this trade, took the products to the Iberian Peninsula, once in Spain. Portuguese Jewish converts bought and commercialized the tobacco and the tax levied on its distribution and consumption served to a good extent to sustain the fiscal balance of the Spanish crown. Now, if books are also commodities that cross linguistic and territorial borders, what was the role in this transatlantic entangled history? Can we build an argument about the way in which the circulation of print was constitutive of the mutual development of the empires and the different nations that formed in the first third of the 19th century? That question lies in the background of my lecture. So first, um, the transatlantic roots of the book trade. First, I have to say a little about the book trade in the Spanish and Portuguese empire. Well, I have to say something before, the place I'm standing, I'm talking about the transatlantic and transnational, but I'm standing in Latin America, right? That's my vantage point, that's where, what, I'm, what I'm looking at and where I'm looking out from. Um, and I'm so, speaking a lot more about Spanish-speaking Latin America than about Portuguese America. Okay. Um, So, during the 16th and 17th centuries, the different stages of the production and circulation of print were severely regulated by the Spanish and Portuguese monarchies. Only few printing presses were allowed in the Spanish colonies and none in Brazil, although a few existed for short periods of time, non-official ones.
0: And whatever they
1: printed had to be authorized by civil and church authorities. Licensed printers had to submit their manuscripts to the local functionaries of the Council of the Indies, which then turned it over to the censors. They approved them, provided they did not contain doctrines contrary to the teachings of the church or the crown, and the manuscripts and provided manuscripts were not listed in the indexed librorum Most books came then from the Iberian Peninsula. There was only one court in Spain authorized for trade with the Americas, and there the books were subject to various taxes and checked at custom office against the same index librorum to ensure that heretical works, books of magic and divination, and in the 18th century the writings of the French philosophers did not reach the Americas. However, still, a lot of books entered the colonies via the personal libraries of secular or religious functionaries. Um, They did not have to pay taxes, but they brought them as their personal libraries. They were still checked at customs in in the entry ports, but the books made it anywhere. And then when these people died, the books remained in the Americas. The libraries were sold entirely. then when the Jesuits were expelled from the Spanish Empire in 1767, their books stayed here, there and they actually made, they formed the basis of the first national libraries that were founded after independence. During the 18th century, when the book production increased all over Europe, books printed in the Netherlands, Italy, Geneva, and the German countries reached the Spanish and Portuguese kingdoms as well. Uh, In in 1778, the regulation of free trade ended the Cadiz monopoly by authorizing 13 13 different Spanish ports to trade with the Americans. And that that made the control of the book export more loose. And then a policy of neutral trade... In, in the late 18th century, and then in the 18, 18, from 1805 to 1825, because of the Spanish War with Britain and then the blockade of the Cadiz port from France, that meant the monopoly of Spain uh, over the book trade with the Americans really ended. You know? um, all these changes not only increased the number of books available in the Spanish and Portuguese American kingdoms, but also the type of readings they were doing. You know? Whereas most of I mean, I mean, the books more that, that existed before 1770, 17, 17, 17, for example, were religious tracts. By 1808, seven, 60% of all the books that were imported were not on religious issues. They were on civil matters, law, political economy, natural history, education, dictionaries the writings of Voltaire, Rousseau, Montesquieu, Reynald, Locke, Payne. Although they were forbidden, they, they reached the colonies anyway in French. Um, at the same time, printing in Latin America in the 18th century increased threefold. Um, new printing presses were established. I'm just going to show you this. Well, the, 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 when the, the printing Houses were established in Latin America. So in the, in the late 18th century, there were many new ones. Um,
0: and the main novelty of the
1: 18th century in terms of print were the local periodicals that Anderson has talked about, many local weekly or yeah weekly journals available. Um, or monthly, they published news from the Crown, events in Europe and in the different colonies, news about the arrival of ships, uh, obituaries and announcements of festivals and public examinations in schools and universities. The rapid growth of periodicals has led historians to speak of the formation of a reading public towards the end of the 18th century. This was reinforced by large uh, policies of schooling implemented by the Spanish Crown, Schooling, which included Indian communities and um, indigenous communities, I mean, and girls, too. Um, Moreover, the disintegration of the Spanish and Portuguese empires unleashed by the French invasion of the Iberian Peninsula in 1808, together with the first Spanish legislation on freedom of the press, gave a strong impetus to reading. The independence wars that followed, thanks to the availability of new, cheaper manual printing presses, led to the publication of hundreds of short-lived periodicals, pamphlets, and flyers that were avidly read in collective gatherings. The independence wars of the 1810s and the efforts towards nation building of the new nations in the 1820s were accompanied by intense book production and circulation of works in Spanish throughout the broad Atlantic. In the North American cities of Philadelphia, New York, Boston, Charleston, and New Orleans, Spanish-American and Brazilian diplomats and exiles published political works that then made their way back to their and other countries. Cubans and Puerto Ricans, who did not become independent until the late 19th century, um, continued publishing in, in those cities for several decades, publishing in Spanish, I and mean, even setting their own publishing houses. In London, Spanish-American expatriates and envoys published accounts of the struggles for, for independence and periodicals to gain British sympathy for the cause of independence or to instruct the new Latin American or the Latin American reading public. Some of the key works in support for independence that gave coherence to the chaotic experience of wars were published in London, thanks to British sponsors with ideological or commercial interests in Latin America, and also Spanish emigres in London who favored the independence of the former colonies. Moreover, well, these waves of Spanish and Portuguese immigrants, resident in Bordeaux, Paris, and London, as a consequence of all the other political upheavals in the peninsula, in the Iberia Peninsula, edited political journals in Spanish and Portuguese uh, for, for both the European and the Latin, Amer- the, and the Latin Americans. Uh, or worked as translators of French and English educational and literary works which began to be shipped to the Latin American market once the countries obtained their independence um, for example this was what well, I studied in my PhD um, um, for example textbooks uh, it was educating the, new, the people in the new nations was one of the key motivations and for example there was this series of catechisms that is textbooks written in questions and answers um, published in London in Spanish but on the basis of of some English books that had been published before and then the the translation was carried out by these Spaniards exiled in in London and they made something completely different out of of those books but also new genres were made their way into into the Americans as a consequence of the, the publishing activity in London like these magazines of varieties, especially fashions, and novels, uh, romantic novels published in France. French romantic novels were translated and shipped into, to Latin America. Anyway, how did books and journals make their way into the former colonies of the Americas? That's a tricky question, because um, that trade did not resemble at all what we know of book trade in the 20th century. So they made it basically by three, or through three, three main channels. First, some French and British publishers made joint ventures with investors, mining entrepreneurs and merchants moving into the newly opened Latin American market, using their ships and infrastructures to to introduce books. They left a few books in consignment in local shops, not even bookshops, no? And then also a handful of French and British publishers opened branches in Latin American capitals in the 1810s and 20s, like Bossange, Dudo, Garnier, and Ackerman, the London one. The second channel were these informal networks of Spanish American exiles, diplomats in London, Paris, Philadelphia, and New Orleans. Spanish Americans abroad were extremely active in purchasing books with money from the governments to send them back for the instruction of their countrymen. Political treatises of all kinds or educational manuals and journals were shipped that way. A third channel was, well, local reprint. In a world where no copyright rules existed yet, Entire articles from the imported periodicals were regularly reproduced in local newspapers and many books printed abroad were reprinted locally. Always or very often adapted, rewritten. No? And change uh, yeah. Well, I'm not developing fully this argument here, but I can say that changes in print technologies Um, the transformation of the geopolitics of Atlantic trade and the disintegration of the Spanish monarchy. Well, and what happened in Brazil was not that the empire disintegrated, but the the Portuguese crown moved to Brazil. But all these phenomena coincided in time, but they were not necessarily in a causal uh, relation, right? They were not, one was not caused by the other. We can say with, for example, Stefan Rinke, that indeed the expanded transatlantic book book trade of the early 19th century provided the Latin Americans with ideological resources to make sense of the process they were living, the process they were living to make them intelligible, to develop arguments for independence, but the ideas contained in those books did not lead per se to independence. Okay. Okay, now I'm coming to the second part of my lecture which is about the reading and the networks of communication that developed in this Atlantic basin. In the classical account by Jürgen Habermas, the public sphere was a space that emerged in the 18th century for the coming together of ledgered citizens to freely discuss, in a rational, dialogic form, public affairs. This space was independent and could be critical of the state, hence constituting what Habermas called the civil society. The scenarios that made possible those discussions were the printing press on the one hand, and places that favored new forms of social interactions on the other, such as cafes, soires, gatherings of philanthropic associations. This conceptualization of the public sphere, which in Habermas' account was a short-lived phenomenon of the, 18, of the European Enlightenment, has been used in Latin American historiography to describe the political activism that preceded and accompanied the independence movements. Yet it's also being criticized because in the Latin American countries in this period there was no clear separation bec- between lettered elites and the state, and because other effective forms of political participation and discussion outside the lettered male elites didn't, that existed do not fit within this model of rational communication through print. However, if it's problematic to speak of a lettered civil society at this point in history, it's undeniable that such lettered elites exist, that they engaged in new forms of political communication developed in this period, and that they were essential to the formation of the new political regimes and the struggles of the new political actors to gain legitimacy. Um, The networks of book trade and reading that developed in the first third of the 19th century were, moreover, entirely transatlantic. But in what ways did the transnational book trade enable and shape such forms of communications? And how is that related to the formation of the new nations and their new place in the global geopolitics of the time? Well, to explore these questions I I want to bring to the fore Three three examples, very briefly, from the history of reading in Spanish-speaking Latin America in the early independent period in the 1820s. All three must be understood in their historical situatedness. In this period, when kings no longer existed, when the corporations that organized social and economic life were being dismantled, and when the political and social orders had no clear correspondence with the divine order anymore, readers found themselves in that typically modern gap between experience and expectations the future was open and uncertain yet people were optimistic given their freedom and abundance of natural resources it was so promising if books produced or smuggled into latin american colonies towards the end of the colonial period provided the residents with resources to make sense of their experience and build arguments for or against independence Once independence was achieved and these countries had become republics, reading became an essential part of the collective process of nation building. Moreover, reading what came from other colonies or from outside the former Spanish empire helped the new political elites to distance themselves from Spain and gain legitimacy. Access to foreign books became instrumental to build the narrative that the Spanish monarchy had kept their subjects in ignorance, limiting education, monopolizing the book trade and censoring what they were allowed to read, even though this narrative was not that correct. But it was an essential narrative. So my first example is about reading and self-education. His example of a solitary reader who described his access to political and instructional works from abroad his key to, first, to self-education. This was no ordinary reader. It was Domingo Faustino Sarmiento, intellectual and politician from Rio de la Plata, who would later be the main maker of the mass education system in Argentina. His account of his reading experiences as a teenager, written while he was in exile in Chile, had the purpose of legitimating himself against the Argentine and Chilean ruling elites who had been educated in the traditional colleges inherited from the Spanish monarchy, a privilege he didn't have. So in his narrative, he, he tells how, how his encounter with Ackerman's catechisms, this catechism I showed you before, printed in London. He suggests in his narrative that he had prefigured in his mind something that did not exist locally, but came from outside. I don't know if you can see that, but this is how he describes uh, how he read this, these books. People's history, geography, religion, morals, politics, all that was already written in my mind as in an index. I liked, however, the book which dealt with them. I felt alone in the world. But there must be books, I said to myself, especially about those matters for children and understanding them well, one can learn with no need of teachers. And I launched myself in search of those books and in that remote province at that hour of my resolution and found what I was looking for just as I had conceived it, prepared by patriots who loved America and who from London had provided for that South American need for education, answering my clamor, Ackerman's catechisms, I have found them, I could shout like Archimedes, because I had foreseen them, invented them, looked for such catechisms. Well, refashioning himself as more advanced than his fellow men, he knew what was missing, he knew what was to come, Sarmiento then mentioned what he read after those books, the Bible, presumably an edition of the New Testament printed in in England, again, in Spanish, Pile's Natural Theology, The Lives of Cicero and Franklin, Walter Scott's novel, among others, all of them books printed abroad, given to him by some local shipkeeper. So Sarmiento compared himself with Benjamin Franklin. This this was published in 1850, okay, so... uh, Um, the supreme republican icon of the self-made man. I felt I was Franklin, and why not? I was as poor as he was, as studious as he was, and I felt that sorting myself out and following his steps, I could one day get to form myself as he did, become doctor ad honorem as he did, and make myself a place in American letters and, and politics. So Sarmiento refashioned his personal history, so that his self-taught upbringing appeared as the legitimate credential to enter credentials to enter a status he did not belong he did not have by birth, and to which he could not gain access through economic wealth, in his narrative, gave him breeding gave him a mediated access to a wider world with foreign heroes he could assimilate himself with that access to the wider world was, in his view, the key to access to a very local position within the very local elites. My second example is about uh, fashion magazines for women. In 1822, a British merchant named William Bullock passed by the Mexican city of Jalapa. Talking to members of the wealthiest families of the city, a group of women became very interested in a magazine he had but that was Ackermann's Repository of Arts, which had some plates of women's fashions, but that's the passage. Six months later, when Bolok visited that city again, he noted a big change, which we reported in his travel book. Um. On my return to Halapa, I was immediately struck with the alteration that had taken place in the appearance of many of the ladies during the short time of my absence. Instead of their universal appearance in black as formerly, many were now to be seen in the last fashions of England in white white muslins, printed calicos, and other manufacturers, manufacturers of Manchester and Glasgow and the public promenade, or the evening of a Sunday or a holiday, presented an appearance of gaiety hitherto unknown. On inquiring the cause of this change, I was informed that it principally arose from the volumes of Ackerman's fashions, which I brought with me from England, and the arrival of an English lady, whose newly imported wardrobe had made a hasty tour through the most uh, of the respectable houses in the city and from which the bells had taken their new costumes. I believe a few of our dashing milliners with a tolerable stocking trade would soon realize a property, and by introducing British manufacturers where they are at present little known and known and considerable to their consumption. The revolution in dress and fashion will probably be as great as that in politics, and I hope we change more frequently. <laughs> Well, beyond Bullock's claim, the clear aim of inviting British textile manufacturers to train America, and beyond his personal connection with Roloff Ackerman, who soon after began publishing a Spanish version of his Repository of Arts for spanish American, I want to point at the cultural value of fashions for the wealthy women of Jalapa. Judging by related research into the history of dress, I can say that their desire to change their appearance to that of an English lady was in this moment linked, and I, and I mean, Bullock exaggerates, but, um, but I believe him on that. <laughs> um, uh, it was linked to values of civilization and respectability. Dressing in English fashions, mediated by an English fashion magazine. Fashion magazine was not only a way of distancing from traditional Spanish way of dressing, but also belonging to a wider community of more culture, as they call it, more civilized people. Looking outwards was, again, a means to build a new nation they wanted to belong to. My last example um, is not about, it's, it's about something different. It's about networks of communication. Communi- I mean, reading is communication. But this is a case when readers wrote back and, and and writers wrote back to. So, whereas the two first examples deal with how books that came from elsewhere had a role in making readers imagine they belong to different worlds, and in so doing, building their own world, my last example is set in a scenario in which reading led to an intense two way communication among subjects located in different parts of the Atlantic world. I will talk about the networks of print, books, newspapers, and printed correspondence that were established between, I mean, among British, French, and Spanish American learned communities of educators, intellectuals, and statesmen around the dissemination of an educational innovation of the time, the so called monitorial system of education. The monitorial system of education was a method of elementary schooling designed to teach large amounts large amounts of children and a few teachers thanks to the coordinated work of more advanced students called monitors. It was designed in the British Empire simultaneously in London by the Quaker Joseph Lancaster and in uh, India in Madras by the Anglican Andrew Bell and became extremely popular in the early independent Spanish American countries and also in Brazil even though it was not independent yet. Um, as in many other parts of the world. Its rapid dissemination in Latin America in the years 1815 to 1830 can only be explained because of the high expectations it was associated with um, and because of the effective networks of communications through which it was disseminated. And examine, so here are some of the, of, the, uh, uh, of the manuals of the monitorial system published in Latin America no, in Spanish. Now, an examination of the dynamics of such communication can tell us something very interesting, not only about the positioning of the different parties involved, but also about how that shaped the knowledge of the monitorial system itself. So let me show you a picture of the... um, Well, these are some of the manuals. That's the instructions for teachers on how to conduct a monitorial or so-called Lancasterian classroom because of Joseph Lancaster. The system was supposed to be easily replicated simply by following those detailed instructions, which say how many classes, what they were supposed to learn in the first class, the children were divided in small groups, each of them had a monitor, blah, blah. I'm not going to talk about that. But look at the... um, Now, look at the roots of publication of the manuals. It's not very easy to see. Well, Well, they told me I should not make So. Yeah, <laughs> at the bottom, these are the titles of the books published, the manuals of the monitoring system published in England. Then their translations into French, but some, and then, uh, some of them were directly translated into Spanish and published in, in Spanish-American, Spanish-speaking Latin America. But others were first translated into French, the blue ones. And from France, they were, some of them were translated into Spanish, in Spain, that's the green ones or uh, translated in Spanish into Spanish and published in Latin America, right? So, um, and then some of the, on top of the Latin American manuals, only Spanish speaking manuals because Brazil had many more. Uh, And those ones on top were, well, translations, yeah, from the English into the French, whatever. Some of them combine more than one book. But you can see just with this example of the manuals of the monitorial system, how, how entangled right, with the, the book production and circulation and the book trade of these manuals was. Yes. Anyway. Um, um, well, in all those translations, variations were introduced and also a lot of information about the system was published in periodicals in serial form whatever and many had many reprints so but in addition to what they could learn from them from the manuals themselves very early latin americans involved in education and now policies started corresponding with at least two European societies devoted to the promotion of the monitoring method. That was the British and Foreign School Society, Sister Society of the British and Foreign Bible Society, and the Societe pour la Instrucción from de France. <clears throat> and this correspondent was either carried out by individuals or by associations promoting monitorial education in Mexico City, Caracas, Buenos Aires, Rio de Janeiro, Bogotá, Lima, or Guatemala. It was published in the BFSS, that is the British and Foreign School Society reports, and in the French Journal d'Education, as well in some Latin American periodicals. So these letters, these printed letters, show how interlocutors positioned themselves differently in their communication.
0: The Latin Americans,
1: who usually initiated the contact, sent the European societies newspaper cuttings about the progress of monitoring schools and the regulations of the local educational societies requesting feedback. They also wanted the societies to send them teachers and printed lesson plans, teachers' manuals, school textbooks, school materials, and books of general knowledge. The European societies wrote back with lesson plans and occasionally a manual for teachers. But more than the other things, what they sent were certificates of membership to the old society, copies of their internal regulations, and instructions for the creation of monitorial education societies modeled upon their own. Clearly, Latin American societies were looking for validation of their local activities while seeking approval from the civilized parties of the exchange, right? So this is, for example, how uh, I don't have much time, but you can read the terms of this, of this uh, communication by um, the secretary of the Lancastrian Society of Bogota to the French um, society. Whereas the Latin Americans seemed to position themselves in the in, like subordinated, in a subordinated role of a learner, In reality, the British and the French society were also looking for their own internal validation. They published their foreign correspondence because local benefactors were much easier to attract if the societies could prove that their efforts to internationalize the method were fruitful. And the the British one, the BFSS, was competing with the Anglican National Society for promoting education in the principles of the established church, so there was also a dynamic there of who had met. The best results in their missionary activities in education. And the French, well, the French society was also competing for importance with, uh, with the British because, um, well, as La, La Roche Foucault, an, an author, a member of this society, as he wrote, well, even though it was the English who invented the method of the mutual destruction, the French could have done it. The French could have invented it. And France's role, according to that, was to bring the method to perfection, to disseminate it, and then to contribute to the welfare of the people to achieve national glory and prosperity. So the, the mission solicitrice of the French was already there to be seen. Moreover, the published correspondence was framed in a language of unequal exchange. Both British and French educators referred to the fact that the monitorial method was a treasure more precious than gold uh, presented to the Latin Americans, which contrasted with the speculation and commerce so many Europeans aiming to acquire the wealth of the new world, right? So in the correspondence, Latin American politicians were also positioning themselves as providers of raw information, as raw material, raw resources, but just as they did with the gold and the mines and they were looking for investors. They were also sending information about what they were doing with education, what they were doing with the new political systems, you know, like experiments of Republican organizations sent to Jeremy Bentham, whatever. Um, um, the Guatemalan intellectual José Cecilio del Valle who corresponded with the French society as much as he did with Jeremy Bentham or from Alexander, with Alexander from Humboldt or with publisher Rudolf Ackermann. Sorry, coming soon to my conclusion. I didn't have this slide. Um, um, I mean, he he provided all this uh, way. French and British thinkers with bits of information about the history, nature, politics, and education of his native Central America, so that they would gather this information and make like, the theories and models that they needed in, in, back in Latin America to develop their countries. For example, this is what he wrote this uh, Valle, uh, to to an author of a political economy treatise in Britain. I wish that every wise man of Europe devotes his talent to design the plan that the American Republic should follow in their internal and external affairs. You who have put together in book the most useful that to date has been written in England, France, Italy and Germany would make your work more useful if you united the theory with precise indications as to what is best for the Spanish American states to achieve wealth and prosperity. Your work would then have a double value in the new world and your soul would enjoy the satisfaction of having shown the way to emerging societies that need a guide or a preceptor. Anyway, I know these are only a few examples, but we can see that the communication between the European and the Spanish American lettered elites concerning not only education, but also political economy or the natural world was framed in a language we would call today like, extractivist, Unprocessed fragments of information about the political and educational characteristics and experiments of the countries were exchanged for knowledge, methods, plans, or directions for the new rulers to follow. At the same time, the educational knowledge provided by British and French societies was becoming standardized, universal, replicable by virtue of the very process of making it international. Even though those societies had needs of validation at home that were as pressing as those of the Latin Americans. Now, coming to my conclusion. The category of the transnational public sphere has been applied in the present globalized world to describe the discursive arenas and communicative circuits that overflow the bounds of both nations and states and in which public opinion and political wills are generated and mobilized to create pressure over national and international government structures. For example, Nancy Fraser has put it that way. As I mentioned before in the phenomenon that I've been describing, it's not possible to talk about the formation of a civil society actively discussing public affairs independent from states. But we can certainly talk of extensive communication by print between educated intellectual elites that often were part of the government. This was a plural and very active reading public with access to a transnational book trade and for whom reading helped them imagine their own nations and their place in the wider world. But the normative force of the category of public sphere as if it were part of a history of modern good democratic practices makes it a little unhelpful to extend its use for this time period. More important would be to try to identify the dynamics of the communication that was established among people situated in different parts of the Anglo-Iberian Atlantic by means of print. For this, we have to examine not only the circuits of communication of the printed material, but also the role that writers, readers, rewriters, or users of print in their social and cultural and historical situatedness assumed within that communication. I have suggested here that Latin American actors saw themselves as providers of raw materials for others to theorize upon, that they constructed a particular local legitimacy by invoking contact with more enlightened communities, whereas actors situated in Britain or France were also building their own validation in their competition against other local or national actors, and that the dissemination of those theories and models made them standard and hence universally valid, a typically Western concern. Only if we pay attention to these transatlantic knowledge power relations can we begin to make sense of an entangled book history in the Atlantic. If we take this issue in its complexity, I believe we would be able to show how the transnational circulation of print contributed to build the situated and unequal ways in which we think, name, and conceptualize the experiences of enlightenment, capitalism, colonization, and modernity. Thank you very much. Thank you. So I understand there's a brief question and answer in time.
0: I'm interested in what the next steps will be in your project.
1: Yeah. The thing is, I'm um, in the past few years, I've been working on the history of um, educational concepts. So um, I'm I'm trying to bring in. Um, yeah, it's difficult to say. I, I I don't know yet, but it concept educational concepts circulated no, throughout the Atlantic again now. Public instruction, public education, whatever um, intuition, and uh, I've never. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm always making the connection between uh, ideas, concepts, um, the channels, and the material form in which they are being conveyed. So I'm working a lot of translation on translations and reprints and translations from like. Con- the German concept of intuition and how it moved in, uh, like in French in, uh, into the uh, or object, and then in, in, in the US as object lessons. And so I'm working on this entangled histories of education in which both concepts and um, the material form of print are, in, are intertwined. So I, I think I've been working a lot more on translation issues lately. Yeah? But I still don't know how it's going to be, how how my next book is going to look like. Hi, um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit toward um, social class in the information of these books. I know later. to create this like, you know, emerging middle class in the United States of immigrants. So I'm wondering, especially considering like during the revolutionary period and they're basically just replicating European, you know, models of existence and meaning, what, what role did maybe like the newspapers play? To a wider social class, mm-hmm. or was it just really specifically advertised toward the um, elite? Was it education mm-hmm. system for everyone? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a very broad question. I mean, these networks of uh, like networks of people throughout the Atlantic I've been talking about—they were really elites, no? But they were also part of the government. But the interesting thing is, like to look at how different social groups appropriated print and the resources that print gave them to many purposes, right? And what you can see in, I mean, I'm just giving you one example. Um, during the independence wars, well, printing, print was really a, a big issue to publish like the different manifestos and stuff of the different groups. But then after independence, um, in this uh, long history for achieving legitimacy and for the creation of the new representative political regimes, I mean that the, most of the nineteenth century was a very troubled period with lots of uh, pronunciamentos, I many little revolts everywhere all the time all over the territory and these revolts in these revolts um, The printed manifestos were really important. That was the way in which they expressed themselves, their ideas, what the government was failing, what they were um, standing up against. And these uh, manifestos were then reprinted in the daily press, in the newspapers, and then the newspapers were also replicated in different cities of the countries. So I think um, one has to look at these particular things, and, the, and this is what these were many, many different social groups, but then you have the specialized uh, journals for women towards the, the middle of the nineteenth century you know, women as readers. I think the the schooling the schooling policies of the late part of the colonial period were really effective in bringing a lot of more people uh, into literacy, including indigenous communities you know, by 1808, only in Mexico, 40 percent of the indigenous communities had a school, a school of, uh, that was teaching in Spanish, not only a church school. So yeah, you you have to look into all these things. Now, what I'm talking here is really about uh, uh, intellectual elites that were mobile and transatlantic and did a lot of things, but in the development of the of of print you have you have to look at these, these ways in which many different groups, social groups appropriated you now the possibility of printing their own things. Mm. Yeah Michael.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, I'm wondering what kind of documentation I'm really intrigued do you have um, about these ad hoc relationships between booksellers in, you know, capitals and um, marine venturers to the New World—people uh, who are running ships, people who are uh, uh, passengers on ships to establish new commercial enterprises—could you tell us something about the the nature and and kind of historical record of? How do you know about those things?
1: Well, we have the book registers at the custom offices because books had to be declared, yeah either in Spain or when they came in so that's that's one source um, especially for the colonial period. but then for the early independence period well it's a myriad of sources like travel I mean, travelers' journals and then um, personal correspondence of publishers, diaries, and stuff. But mainly you want to follow like the... Yeah, I, I looked into so many different things and it, I didn't even have the archival records of Ackerman, of, the, of Ackerman's company. But I had, I don't know, the journals of Blanco White, one of his translators, the journal of uh, another, another traveler, Valdeck, the journal of Pollock. And then some of the bank accounts and stuff. One has to look for for this period. Really, one has to look to different sources, like around the subject, because there is not a a specialized specialized archive on book trade. And, and mm-hmm. book. No, 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 no. That's that's why I was in all over the world when I was writing this dissertation. Yeah, huh? to look into many different things. But more system. These book registries in, in the ships. Perhaps that's the most most systematic source of information you can have. Uh, mm-hmm. But also, also sorry, also some uh, journals um, um, in the in the port cities published when a when a ship arrived and it had I don't know it's, it said it has whatever twenty boxes of books. Or you don't know exactly what books, but you know that books were coming in. Huh? So this also
0: these sources. Thank you. This uh, is really fun. I was wondering uh, if there was a reverse movement of books and ideas, particularly Latin America.
1: Independence. the relation with, with Spain was severed. I mean it was really cut. all commercial relations with were severed. Um, um, but informal contacts existed. And, um, but no, but publishing back, like like books published in, in Spanish-speaking Latin America going back. To Spain, that's something that's a phenomenon of the 20th century. But really, not in the in the 19th century. Eh, either the books came from Europe or from the U.S. Or they they began to be published locally, especially in the second part. But mo- m- books going back, I mean, I'm doing a lot of research on textbooks in the late 19th century right now, and uh, we it's the same it's the same trend. Books printed in France are. Translate it into Spanish and publish here. Not the other way around. Not the other way around. But, mm-hmm.
0: Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, what depth of knowledge! And <laughs> thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Please mm-hmm. join me in thanking our